Hi there. Welcome to the fray. This is episode two of part one of our long series, hopefully long series, on Socrates. The series is entitled The Alpha Human. Like I said, this is episode two of part one. So if you missed episode one, go back and catch up on it. And if not, I'd like to welcome you. Come along and join me as we enter the fray. You have a choice to make, number one or number two. When presented with a similar question, Roman soldiers had definite opinions on which was better. Leading up to and during hand-to-hand combat, the man who shit himself was held in much higher regard than the man who pisses himself. The distinction was simply pragmatic. Vacating one's bowels in the heat of battle is just physical reaction the body's way of reallocating resources. Soldiers understood all about reallocation of resources. On the other hand, letting loose to number one is seen in a much different light. Roman soldiers saw it as weak, feminine, a choice, a choice made by a coward. You're probably wondering why I'm talking about this. First, what does it have to do with Socrates? It has something to do with the old goat, First, Socrates was a soldier, and a good one. He probably held similar views concerning taking a duke versus taking a whiz. But more germane to this episode is that I thought we could take a minute and break from the typical podcast format and take a little field trip. In between podcasts, I did some reconnoitering, and I selected a specific moment for us to view in person. That's right. Like I said, we're going on a field trip. We are on the beach. We're on a beach near the city of Ilium, more famously known as Troy. It is right around 1200 BC, and we're not more than 100 yards outside the largest tent city you've ever seen. Stretching as far as the eye can see are tents, bonfires, men, and animals. It's chaos, and we're about to sneak into that chaos. We're about to sneak into the Greek camp in the midst of the Trojan War. The reason I was reviewing the Roman soldier's human waste virtue system a second ago is that in order to get to where we need to be, we have to don a disguise. We are lucky to see a pile of battle-worn uniforms. They must have recently been discarded from the returning Greeks who were left standing after quite a day. It's a very famous day in the history of the war. It's the day the Greek hero Achilles killed the Trojan prince Hector and for all intents and purposes ended the war. There is much celebrating going on and an equal amount of grieving. So while the coast is chaos, we have our decision to make still. Would we rather slip on a soiled uniform covered in excrement or urine? We make our way over to the pile of used uniforms, and man, do they reek. Blood, guts, both human and animal, and plenty of the aforementioned shit and piss. We must select one of these and wear it into camp. How long? How long can someone wear another person's waist? Hopefully not too long. We are, after all, only searching for a moment, which will help us towards our ultimate goal to understanding Socrates. So let's make haste. I suggest you find a coward's uniform and wear that. That's the route I'm going to go. I can't rock a stranger's number two unless I absolutely must. 
the odor emanating from our uniforms is overwhelmed by the stench of thousands of men who the best thing that can be said about their hygiene is that they bathe in olive oil. So if we keep moving, we should be okay. We're looking for a large black tent. All right, there it is. And as I suspected, there is no guard around the tent. We can make our way to the back and take a look inside. There are only two men inside the enormous tent and only one small fire. The light is casting dancing shadows on the tent's inhabitants. This is not a friendly meeting. The two men couldn't look much different. One is old, one is young. One is a king disguised as a beggar, the other is a nearly immortal warrior. One is King Priam of Troy, the other is Achilles of the swift feet. It is quite a scene. King Priam, disguised as a beggar, but don't let the disguise fool you. He's a great man in his city of Troy, and his last son was just slain in battle. That's saying something, too, as Priam boasts to have had 50 sons, 19 of them from one woman, and all of them are dead. All of them died at the hands of the Greeks over the course of the Trojan War, and many of them at the very hand of the man that is sitting not two feet from him. Achilles couldn't look more different than Priam. He's sitting basically naked on a stool, ramrod straight, kind of looks like he's got a stick up his ass, and there's very little emotion on his face. At the moment, they both stare silently into the fire. A Greek soldier enters the tent from the front. Achilles looks up. The soldier nods and leaves. This is it. This is what we came to see. Achilles is about to ask Priam to dinner. That's right. We are wearing piss rags and risking life and limb to see a dinner invitation. I wanted something that was common. I mean, sort of common. Priam did just lose his 50th son. I wanted something common because I think sometimes it's easier to contrast two things like then and now, ancient Greece and now, put perspective on it if you isolate a small detail. Achilles stands and he's going to go ahead and give the invitation. So let's listen in. Quote, Sir, your son is now laid upon his bier and is ransomed according to your desire. You shall look upon him when you take him away at daybreak. For the present, let us prepare our supper. For even lovely Niobe had to think about eating, though her twelve children, six daughters, and six lusty sons had all been slain in her house. Apollo killed the sons with arrows from his silver bow to punish Niobe, and Artemis slew the daughters because Niobe had vaunted herself against their mother, Leto. Niobe said Leto had borne but two children only, whereas she herself had borne many, whereon two killed the many. Nine days did they lie weltering, and there was none to bury them, for the son of Cronos had turned the people to stone. But on the tenth day, the gods in heaven themselves buried them, and Niobe then took food, being worn out with weeping. They say that somewhere among the rocks and the mountain pastures where the nymphs live that haunt the rivers, they say Niobe lives, and still nurses the sorrow sent upon her by the hand of heaven. Therefore, noble sir, let us, too now, take food. So how different is that than the last time you asked a buddy to have a bite to eat? Did your invitation have any kill-crazy family massacre stories in it? Mm, mine neither. I'm wondering how these old boys ever got around to fighting when something as simple as his dinner invite takes a half an hour. 
But that's it. That's what we came to see. So it's time to take our last look at ancient royalty and get out of these awful piss rags. Okay, so what was the point of all that? Well, I did tell you that I love the Iliad. I couldn't let the opportunity pass me by on this time-traveling philosophical road trip. This is one exit I was sure to take. Another reason is that I think that chewing on a paragraph from the Iliad feeds directly into the time frame we're going to be talking about in this episode. We began our journey 40,000 years ago and have made it all the way up to about 1200 BC. We've been hauling some temporal ass. Showcasing the Trojan War to give you the flavor of what this time period in Greek history is all about is kind of a no-brainer. Because the people that populate the epic poems, the Iliad, and the Odyssey are a great representation as to what it is like to live in 1200 BC. It was like the philosopher Hobbes said, nasty, brutish, and short. A big reason for that was because Greece had a warlord problem. Guys like Agamemnon, Menelaus, Odysseus, Ajax, both big and small, were all about lording and all about warring. Them and men like them were doing it all over the place. They took all those villages we talked about last episode and started turning them to their will. As the villages had begun to prosper, so did the men that found themselves leading those villages when the good times were putting gruel in everyone's bucket. But how did they do it? It seems very anti-Greek to have a one man in charge. Especially considering what we learned in last episode and what we continue to learn about Greek culture and how civilization came about. It's also consistent with how people in many ways felt back then. They thought it was pretty crappy too, but tyrant's going to tyrant. Because what are you going to do? Life was better under these asshats. There was more stability. Though that is, like many things of the ancient world, relative. Stability for us means earning a steady 3% on our T-bills. For an ancient Greek, stability meant living past the age of 7. That is, if you were a guy. If you were a girl, just the chance at living was something you were craving. Because it wasn't that easy. Never easy for women. But there had been improvements. One of the largest improvements was the ability to plant those all-important olive and grape crops and have them last long enough to bear fruit. In some cases, like with olives, this can take up to 40 years. So you can see how having a supermassive asshole on your side was okay if he was able to fend off all the other neighboring supermassive assholes. It's hard to say any of us wouldn't agree to that, beat starving to death. The other thing that was happening to help keep the warlords in power besides producing some really great extra virgin olive oil, was that what served as sort of custom, I'm not going to go as far as say call it religion, but the customs of the time were being transformed. Those home and hearth gods, the stories that villagers told themselves, their technology, that's what it was. For instance, if in the springtime and you go to start your lawnmower and it's not working, it's not starting, you look like an idiot for a few minutes, ripping on that ripcord with all your neighbors are laughing at you. What do you do? Well, you go back in, you find your phone, get on YouTube, and you ask the question, how do I get my lawnmower started? And within 0.91 seconds, you'll have 4 billion answers. That's technology. You use technology to solve your problem. For the ancient Greek, their custom, their technology would go something like this. Everything would be the same. You'd walk out. You'd pull that lawnmower out. You'd riff on it five or six times. Neighbors all be laughing at you. You'd stomp off looking for your technology. You'd grab the closest goat, maybe a chicken, and you would slice the throat and let blood go everywhere. 
and you would just wait for the lawnmower to start. Talk about being relative. Anyway, those customs were being transformed. They were always there, but now pace of change was starting to accelerate. It's not that strange that a spiritual movement, a customs culture movement will go through change. It's usually slow and basically imperceptible unless there's some sort of major event that changes the very fabric of reality. Well, not that dramatic, but something big happening does hasten along the pace of change. For its time, the Trojan War was as big as you can get. The stories that were coming out of the war, usually in iambic pentameter, were drenched in the supernatural. Except that's a word we can't use when we are talking to the average ancient Greek, because there was no super in the world of gods and goddesses. It was all natural. I mean, gods were super in their minds, but they didn't believe that they didn't exist outside of the world. They, of course, existed. They were natural, really scary, and really confusing. What must it have been like to live in a world where you literally believe that a god can appear as a benign farm animal and then transform into a supervillain with golden goo for blood? And what about the rape? I mean, how fucked up is it if you happen to be attractive? And this worked both ways, on both genders. You could expect to be raw-dogged by a god disguised as waterfowl. I mean, in the truest sense of the words, I mean, what the fuck? Well, to get back on track, the Trojan War signals a changing of the times. Gods and goddesses have always been around. They are just part of that large, magical, supernatural belief system that we humans employed for about 98% of our entire existence. So far be it from us to judge. But what changed after the Trojan War was that the fat cats, the gods and goddesses of Mount Olympus, were put to work. The warlords took what was once universal and personal. Universal is everyone in Greece did it. Personal is that they did it their own way, without any guidance. There was no formalization of the practices of what they did to appease their gods and goddesses. So it was universal and personal, and they began to insert themselves into it, them being the warlords. Now, a modern example to help you out, maybe think of television. When television first broke big in the early 1950s, almost exclusively the content was local. The programming was local. Now, as the years passed, control of that content and the airwaves was consolidated into smaller and smaller groups of media conglomerates. They all sort of formed this soupy mass of shit. And out of the ass end of this filthy mass of shit was shat, Fox News. Now, a similar sentiment can be made for the likes of men like Agamemnon. So that's where we find ourselves in the 1200s BC. At this point, we're going to have to keep faking it till we make it, because it's hard to imagine something like democracy ever coming out of a situation like this. Over the next 300 years or so, the lands of the warlords were in constant flux. A mixture of greed and need required that people compete for resources. Warlords came and went as certain areas of the peninsula had grown to such a state that they in fact became a state, a city-state to be exact. In many ways, these city-states do not differ greatly from our own states, Many of them were the size of small states like Delaware and Rhode Island. And many of them contain complete red asses that no one likes, just like us. I'm talking to you, Sparta. Oh, and hey, I would like to introduce you to our state of Ohio. I think you guys would get along great. But I digress. My point is that in those 300 years that passed from 1200 to 900, 
are great examples of the one step forward, two steps backward problem. Progress was very hard to come by because they were always fighting. Fighting in the figurative sense over the scant resources and fighting in the literal sense when the scarcity of resources required a raid or, in ever-increasing numbers, resulting in all-out war. The warlords had no answer for this problem, which isn't a surprise. They're not called solution lords. They do war. Now, the funny thing that happened on the way to irrelevance, and make no bones about it, that's where Greece was headed. History is full of failed civilization, led by leaders who couldn't stop stepping on their own dicks. As I just said, something happened that changed the course of the Western world. The city-state was born. The honor for being first goes to Argos, home of the fight in Argives, a hearty and easygoing bunch of folks. Other city-states were soon to follow. If you Google a list of city-states in chronological order, Google says Athens was first, and by a long stretch, too, which doesn't really jive with the information that I got from the books, so tomato, tomato. I'm going to stick with my Argives. In any event, the city-state brings about great change for all of Greece. I've never gotten my clear answer in my head as to why the Greeks formed into city-states. I have a feeling that this is a modern term used to help us understand their culture. The area that became Argos, the city-state, and its inhabitants that lived there more than likely thought of themselves as Argives long before 900 BC. It may be more accurate to say that the Greek city-state as we know it came into being in 900 BC. However, Argos and the hundreds of city-states to follow over the next century couldn't kick the tyrant habit. They couldn't shake the he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch cycle they were caught in. Lucky for them and us, that progress is not a singular focus because even though politically the, the Greeks were as stunted as ever in other aspects of their life, you're about to begin to see some of the amazing contributions ancient Greeks are known for. And that's no joke either. These are some all-time greats. The first event invention that we're going to talk about is the epic in the form of not one, but two massive poems entitled The Iliad and The Odyssey. They are believed to have come out within the same year, though no one knows the precise date of publication. We know what happened in the 8th century BC. And when we're talking about the thousands of years that separate us from ancient Greece, it's amazing that anything at all has survived. In the case of Homer, the man credited with composing the poems, we come up on the short end of the stylus because we know absolutely nothing about the man himself. I mean, there's conjecture that Homer lived in Asia Minor, that he was born in 1200, he was born in 800, he, he lived not too far from Troy, we don't know. The OG historian himself, Herodotus, places Homer's birth, places Homer's birth in the 850s BC. And all things said and done, that's good enough for me. Herodotus is not only more capable than me in any type of writing or history and research, I mean, he invented history, he invented prose, those are two big things, but he would also be able to punch his bare fist into my rib cage and rip out my lungs if he were so inclined. Because the one thing you should keep in mind, no matter what job we have given the ancient Greek, poet, historian, playwright, politician, philosopher, the man himself would care only for how well he fought in battle. Here's a great example. Aeschylus, a famous playwright who was known as the father of tragedy. He must be a real kick at dinner parties. He requested that these words be written on his tombstone. This tomb hides Aeschylus, Athenian born, Euphorion's son amid Gela's corn. How good a fighter, Marathon could tell. The long-haired Persian knows it all too well. That's one badass playwright. The Greeks were by any stretch of the imagination more physically hardy than the majority of humans alive today. Their sheer ability to survive and the behavior it inspired would shock us. 
when was the last time you had to cave a man's skull in with a club so that you could steal his corn and feed your family? I bet it's been a while. If we were to apply the ain't-no-other-man labeling system to the ancient Greek, I think he would score a four out of four. Not eating a full meal in weeks, your village burned to the ground, all 12 of your kids slaughtered by the gods. You gotta have a soul to make it through that shit. As far as class goes, that may be my more difficult assertion to back up, mostly due to the differences in our cultural systems. But I would venture that for the time, the average Greek was more classy than your rank-and-file barbarian. They could also be called stylish if you were into that thin, country-strong type. And lastly, there could be no equivocation. The ancient Greek was by any measure badass. Miss Aguilera would approve. My point is that Herodotus jammed his gore-slathered spear into the guts of another man multiple times. Nothing I've ever done can compare to that. If he says Homer was born in 850 BC, Homer was born in 850 BC as far as I'm concerned. But what if, what if he wasn't born at all? With all due respects to badass historians everywhere, we don't know a damn thing about Homer. Not when he was born, not where he was from, not even if he wrote the damn poems at all. Interesting. If you are inclined to a good conspiracy theory, like moi, then there is something cooking in this kitchen. I mean, think about it. Warlords used the ancient stories to consolidate and maintain a docile populace. I mean, once literacy begins to spread and copies of the Iliad and the Odyssey are disseminated, what was once merely stories around the fire now takes on the air of legitimacy. Hell, take away the conspiracy theory altogether. Let's go back to that television analogy. I'm not saying that Rupert Murdoch was plotting the downfall of the Western world while he was snorting coke off a model's ass in his early 20s. But there doesn't have to be conspiracy to end up with an abomination like Fox News, or warlords for that matter. I mean, maybe a group of enterprising warlords did form a limited partnership with the intent to create the entire Homeric myth. Maybe not. Just saying. All right. So remember Achilles' whacked-out dinner invitation from earlier? Well, that's the Iliad, right? How muddled, confusing, and terrifying was it? Well, that's Homer. That also was the world of ancient Greece. It's hard to overstate the effect these stories had on Greek culture. It has been described as their religion, but I don't think that's an apt term. For me, I liken the epics of Homer in more of the pop culture vein. Delivery systems for bootstrapping reasons for acting inhumane for acting less than human. Hard life wasn't just surviving, it was fighting tooth and nail. And when you fought tooth and nail, bad things happened. It's hard to put ourselves in the place of someone that desperate. But so much of human history must be made up of an endless series of Sophie's choices that humans have been forced to make. So the Iliad and the Odyssey helped make sense of that world to the Greek. When your brother's family begs you for food and you ignore their pleas as they die of starvation because he made fun of your big nose, it feels better knowing that the gods and goddesses, the beings tasked with creating and ruling your world, would most certainly let your bro starve too. So you kept the goat because you liked a little cheese in your arugula salad and your brother's family wasted away. So what? It's not like the omniscient beings that rule the world are any better. In fact, they're worse. So no problem. What's a little fratricide when a tasty salad is in the works? And beside being a vehicle to excuse any and all bad behavior under the banner of whataboutism, which does sound familiar, the Homeric output of the 8th century also legitimized one of Socrates' greatest foes. Revenge. Eye for an eye. Treat your friends well and your enemies worse. Fuck your brother. He should have considered your feelings more before honking off about your honker. The pages of the Iliad and the Odyssey are also awash in this type of thinking. 
revenge. The very premise of the Thousand Ships was based on not only getting Helen back, but to make the Trojans pay for what they did. So this was popular stuff. I mean, who didn't like being told that you can do anything you want to anyone you want whenever you wanted to? Socrates will work his whole life to defeat what he saw as a yoke around the neck of man, but the people of Greece loved it. The epic works of Homer became, for all intents and purposes, the gospel of the Greeks. Like many holy books throughout the ages, while delivering some relief to the common man, it was being used mostly to consolidate power and enforce agendas that were in the best interests of those in power. It led Socrates to mistrust poetry. He was not a fan. He was probably a fan of this next contribution to the world from ancient Greeks in this time frame. The 8th century produced the first Olympic Games. We know they kicked off around 776 BC. In many ways, the games, which were highly attended and very popular, are similar to today's games. It was a chance for each city-state to impress and hopefully intimidate their neighbors. There is actually a record of each of the original Olympic Games that lasted over a thousand years before getting canceled by the Christian killjoys of the 4th century AD. The Olympics were more than just naked blokes wrestling and running, junk flapping everywhere. They were, as they are now, replacements for war and warlike behavior, a chance to generate civic pride without resorting to mass slaughter. To think of all that went into the ancient Olympic Games with hundreds of city-states participating is pretty mind-boggling. The fact that every four years the entire Greek peninsula would journey to the vast lands of the Peloponnese, where the Spartans lived, basically, and run and jump and compete is impressive. It is absolutely astounding that they could do this for over a millennium without starting one single armed conflict. Like Zimmern said, hardy, but easygoing. Athletics and art showed remarkable innovation in the 8th century. This was due to the extended time of peace. The trade agreement and the treaty had replaced the sword and the shield for many of the city-states. Many of them were big enough to support agreements over armaments. This was freeing up Greeks to begin to experience a little bit of that leisure they were so fond of. And it paid off. Within a hundred years of city-states being on the scene, we get Homer and we get the Olympic Games. But the Greeks don't stop there. The hits just keep on coming. Next up on the hit parade is something called the Delphic Oracle. Now, you've probably heard about it. It's been portrayed in movies. It's usually portrayed as sinister or mysterious. It was much more benign than that, um, but powerful. We still know about it today. That's saying something. It is a real place in Greece, and it has enormous significance in the entire Greek commonwealth and of Socrates in particular. This is a big time of change for the Greeks, most of whom are highly conservative people. New shit is not something they are going to get all excited about. Homer is out there making a rock star out of the sacred rites that predate the invention of the wheel. The Olympics are stealing the true glory of hand-to-hand -hand combat. The only true measure of man has been replaced by games. These changes reverberated through the culture of ancient Greece. For some, it was a welcome from the same old 40,000-year recipe for elk tongue ragu, and for others, it was a great old spit in the face. So it didn't take long for the conservatives to fight back. I believe this because no one really knows who started the Delphic Oracle. It is credited to Apollo, but we have already covered what a douche he is. Stuck again with, without the facts, my mind begins to wander into conspiracy territory, but this time I think it's more justified. I think a solid case can be made for a conservative basis for the starting of this oracle. I mean, first it was built in the middle of nowhere, top of a hard-to-reach mountaintop. This is straight-up conservative porn. And what interests us most is what is written in stone as you enter and when you leave the monument-like structure. 
There are two words carved into the arch that serves as the entrance and just two words carved to, into the exit as you leave. So whoever created the Delphic Oracle has to be given some credit for encompassing so much for using so little. It is the embodiment of what it means to be an ancient Greek. The two words carved in stone as you enter the temple are know thyself. Two words that are pretty remarkable considering the time they came about. Introspection was not a strong suit of the ancient Greek. To adorn your temple with an inward-directed command was new, but harkened back to something very old. At first, people will take this quite literally, as in, check yourself before you wreck yourself. It's hard to miss the shot across the bow to the tyrants and warlords of the day. The oracle is calling the most powerful to account for their behavior. Know your place. You are the son of your father and his father before him. Stop being such a gobshit. But others, like Socrates, See, this is a psychological request. Know thyself was a command to search inwardly for answers, but it would take almost 300 years for someone, our alpha human, to make that connection. Up until Socrates comes on the scene, the Greeks didn't have a need to understand themselves. It was, to them, an unknowable void that was under the control of morally corrupt but powerful deities. The other phrase which is carved over the exit is even more Greek in its ethos. Be moderate. These are the two words that you see as you leave the oracle's temple. As I see it, there is no way around the conservative nature of the messages being put forth by the oracle. Moderation is in itself a conservative notion. The conservatives were striking back against all that change that has been happening. I mean, did you see all that junk flapping going on in the last Olympic Games? For shame. Think of the children. So on one hand, you have the epics of Homer espousing the most base of moral theories, 28,000 lines, over 300,000 words, describing demonic levels of murder, rape, infanticide, greed, and avarice, all presented as just and virtuous. And on the other hand, you have the Delphic Oracle. Four words, 23 total letters, laying out simple belief that still resonates today. If less is more, then the Oracle is the Costco-sized portion of morality. So ancient Greece has its own little culture war going on in the 8th century. The progressive side of the coin was enjoying their written word and the naked wrestling, while the conservative side of Greece was basking in the warm glow of their oracle. The next shoe to drop was going to go a long way in determining which way the story is headed. If it falls on the conservative side, then we have a tie for big things that happened in the 8th century BC. If what happens next is progressive, then it's game over. Greece will turn on the burners and not look back until they end up defining the world and remaking it in their image. Well, score one for the progressives. The 8th century wasn't done dropping giant history-defining revelations. And this last one will probably have as big an effect on Socrates as anything that we'll talk about over the course of the whole series. See if you agree with me. In the 800s BC, in ancient Greece, philosophy was invented. Told you. I mean, where would Socrates be without philosophy? You may be saying, wait, I thought Socrates is called the father of philosophy. Indeed he is. But he wasn't the first. There's this whole group we can call the grandfathers of philosophy. They were natural philosophers due to the fact that the area of philosophical inquiry was exclusively the natural world and how it worked. What made these guys progressive was that they took their philosophy seriously. The pre-Socratics were materialists in the strictest sense of the word. They didn't believe in any gods or goddesses. They never even talked about them. They only dwelled on what could be understood through observation and reasoning. They were atheists. No mysterious supernatural forces for these guys. Just good old-fashioned science. Though they didn't call it that. 
They weren't interested in looking inward either. To them, the Delphic Oracle's words were just saying that you were no more or no less a basic human. Nothing inward at all. These guys were all physics and no metaphysics. We know these philosophic explorers as the pre-Socratics. Not surprisingly, we don't know a ton about them. But what we do know is pretty out of sight. I don't want to give away all my good stuff because I'm planning on devoting a whole series on these guys, but I'll just say that they are the animal house of philosophy's fraternity row. They are some crazy some bitches. But they're also some big brain motherfuckers. Just an example, in the 600s BC, one of them developed a cosmological theory based on tiny, unbreakable, unobservable building blocks of matter called atoms. You bet your ass they came up with atomic theory 20 centuries before we did. Their importance to Socrates and this discussion is that they paved the way for men to be philosophers. It had nothing to do with their actual teachings and beliefs. Socrates, while friends with some of them, did not ascribe to their form of philosophy. He was not interested in what matter was made of or what kept an arrow in the air after being shot. He appreciated the pre-Socratics. Their area of inquest just didn't flick his bick. Most importantly, Socrates was not an atheist, and he found the pre-hymns very short-sighted with their singular focus on the material world. Their importance to Socrates lies in the fact that they legitimized a way of life that was heretofore considered a realm of magicians and soothsayers, namely that of a professional asker of questions. A good philosopher is always asking questions. Take it from the man himself. Socrates says, The highest form of human excellence is questioning oneself and others. Thanks to the pre-Socratics, our alpha human didn't have to establish a new scene for himself as the stage had already been set. One more point on this topic. Socrates read the Delphic Oracle differently than the pre-Socratics, especially that first message, know thyself, is practically Socratic in its scope. What we know of the man himself is that he saw the message from Delphi as matching what he was being told by his spiritual advisor, the voice in his head, mainly that knowing thyself starts with admitting that you know nothing. And that's one of the bedrock principles of Socrates' philosophy. But we're not quite there yet. We're actually still about 200 years away from our main man hitting the bricks. What we've just experienced is a whirlwind century leading up to one of the most important parts of our story. We get to meet our beauty for the first time. We are now ready to start talking about Athens proper. At the close of this momentous century, we find Athens just getting her bearings. Like many city-states of her time, she lives precariously between success and failure. One thing that she does have going for her is that she is filled with people that love Homer. They love the Olympics and love their natural philosophy. For some reason, Athens is a progressive place filled with a type of Greek consciousness that amazes with its sheer amount of astounding output. Socrates, Euripides, Aeschylus, Herodotus, Thucydides, Aristophanes, Hippocrates, Pericles, Sophocles, that's just off the top of my head, some of the intellectual and artistic titans that Athens would produce. We have no modern comparison for that. Maybe, maybe Silicon Valley, with all the technology firms forming the future of mankind in its image, maybe. But I doubt Google will ever produce a Socrates. For the first time, we are starting to see a glimmer of what can be, if nurtured and helped along. Democracy. And as far as fetched as it seemed just 300 years ago in the fields of Ilium, we're starting to see a little sprout. But we're not out of the woods yet. The city-state of Athens and the rest of the Greek peninsula will undergo one more massive change that will change their way of life far more than all the poems of Homer, the words of the Delphic Oracle, 
and the amazing pronouncements of the pre-Socratics combined. It is a technology that will bring with it a tremendous amount of change, both good, the very golden age of Greece will owe its existence to its introduction, and many men will become vastly wealthy. And the change will also be bad, in the very real sense that it almost single-handedly dooms the entire Greek way of life. Only something truly dramatic and out of left field can seem to pull them out of the crisis that they will find themselves in. But that is a story for the next episode. So I'll be signing off at this time, and I look forward to the next time you join me as we enter the fray. <laughs>